So I'm going to, I just don't want to promise a kind of complete record of every appearance of the dodo in literature by that title, but I do want to touch on a few examples um, and pick up on some of the things that Paul laid out for us. So Victorians were fascinated by extinct creatures. Dickens begins Bleak House, 1852, with an unforgettable image of the fog waddling through London like a megalosaurus 40 feet long. Tennyson, Shaw, and many other writers invoke the megatherium, a genus of elephant-sized ground sloth. The dodo was an even better icon of extinction because it seemed so familiar, a bird with beak and feathers and on a human scale, and much more recent, so within human memory. <clears throat> oh, hang on a second. Here we go. Um, so Thomas Hardy, in The Return of the Native, 1878, has Ven the Redleman, so Reddle was this red ochre that um, had to be distributed to the sheep farmers so they could mark their sheep. Um, and Venn is described as, quote, one of a class rapidly becoming extinct in Wessex, filling at present in the rural world the place which, during the last century, the dodo occupied in the world of animals. He is a curious, interesting, and nearly perished link between obsolete forms of life and those which generally prevail. Um, so this is an example of that, the, the frequency, the, the dodo crops up frequently in Victorian writing, um, and often as if it's only recently disappeared. Um, so he's raising a, awareness of the passing of age-old rural traditions that will soon become extinct, but he's slightly off on his timing of the dodo's extinction. And Ibsen does the same. Art forms like species of animals can become extinct, he says. Verse drama is one such example. It will meet the same fate as the dodo, quote, of which only a few individuals remain down on an African island. This is in a letter of 1883. So um, he's way off, as the last sighting, as we've heard, was 200 years earlier. But there seems to be a sort of wish, wish to, to, to um, bring it back. And we see this, of course, in Alice. And we'll talk about that in a second. Um, and the next just brief example I want to touch on is uh, Kipling and Captain's Courageous, 1897. There's a navy that is, quote, more extinct than the dodo. And of course, he's overdoing it a bit because we can debate this, but arguably extinction is absolute. You can have degrees of it, more extinct uh, or less extinct. Um, so on to Alice in Wonderland. So this um, launched the dodo, as Paul said, into its literary fame. Here is the passage in which the dodo is introduced as part of a group of bedraggled creatures on a riverbank. They were indeed a queer-looking party that assembled on the bank, the birds with draggled feathers, the animals with their fur clinging close to them, and all dripping wet, cross, and uncomfortable. So here's another passage that may ring bells with people um, about creatures on a riverbank from a few years earlier. And this is something that Robert Douglas Fairhurst explores in some depth in his wonderful new book uh, called Alice. Um, and the passage from Darwin is, it is interesting to contemplate a tangled bank clothed with many plants of many kinds, with birds singing on the bushes, with various insects flitting about, and with worms crawling through the damp earth. Of course, that is from the famous final paragraph of On the Origin of Species in 1859. Now, we know that Carroll was deeply interested in evolutionary thought, 
after On the Origin of Species came out, he bought no fewer than 19 works by Darwin or his critics, together with five by Herbert Spencer. One of the things that connects Darwin and Carroll, I think, is their fascination with language and narrative. Darwin tells a story of biodiversity, but with no human characters in it yet. He will do that in Descent of Man in 1871. Carroll creates a Darwinian narrative driven by aggression, survival, and transformation. As Douglas Fairhurst puts it, quote, almost every creature is at risk of being killed or eaten. Alice's story is, in John Bailey's words, an essay in the art of survival. Carol's dodo is a very dignified figure who speaks gravely and solemnly and is the one everyone turns to for a solution to the problem of how to dry out after being soaked in Alice's pool of tears. He proposes a caucus race. No one really knows what a caucus race is, but we can assume that it is a race in which everyone runs around at the same time in utter chaos, perhaps Carol getting in a dig at college committees. Notice in Tennille's wonderful picture that the dodo has human hands. He's pointing to Alice. And Douglas Fairhurst suggests a link here with the pantomime. <clears throat> it looks as if it's a, a guy in a, a pantomime suit. He's, he could just cast off. The race is over, they all shout. They all crowded around it, panting and asking, but who has won? This question the dodo could not answer without a great deal of thought. And it stood for a long time with one finger pressed upon its forehead, the position in which you usually see Shakespeare in the pictures of him. The dodo's solution is nice, but probably isn't that viable, everybody winning. Such an outcome doesn't seem compatible with natural selection. In the struggle for life, this would be highly unfavorable to survival, though it does raise an alternative vision of cooperation rather than competition. But note the mention of Shakespeare, another interesting link that elevates the dodo to immortal literary status. There he is. Sorry, that's a little small. It's the best I could do. But they have a lot in common, not least that relatively little is known about their lives in comparison with their global cultural resonance and reach. So we have to reconstitute them from mere traces, which means that we endlessly speculate about the facts of their lives, but we can never fully know them. And, but this, in turn, gives imaginative freedom. And continuing with the Shakespeare motif, this image comes from the notepaper of the most prolific collector of dodo paraphernalia in Britain, Ralph Whistler, who continues the link to Shakespeare, this time making dodos of both Hamlet and Yorick. So I want to draw a little bit more on some of the other um, things I think are going on in relation to the dodo in Alice in Wonderland. I think the Cheshire cat has a lot in common with the dodo. They're not normally compatible in our minds, the cat and the bird, but there's a deepening of the motifs of reconstitution, disappearance, and recovery that underpin the novel. The dodo has vanished, leaving only a few bones. We have to fill out the rest of the body, which, unlike the cat, cannot miraculously come and go at will. It also shows an animal that is wiser and more knowing than the human, also a key motif in Carol's work. And here, both literally and figuratively, sitting in a superior position, looking down on the human. The critic Rose Lovell Smith notes that animals in Alice never acknowledge their inferiority. In fact, it conjures a world of human and animal interchangeability, she says, underscored by Tenniel's drawings of the fingers on the dodo and the grin on the cat. 
which is all that remains. But the dodo has two characters, if you like, the serious and the comical. The comic aspect derives from the apparently clumsy, awkward, comical gait and facial expression, unusual beak, and placid demeanor, allegedly. In this respect, a bit like another endangered animal, the manatee. The idea, perhaps, that it was a bit dim. This comes across in King Dodo, an operetta from 1901 that was very popular and deals with an autocratic, harmless, comical king, quote, a jolly old potentate, in very sort of Gilbert and Sullivan style. And you can listen to excerpts from a 1912 recording on the Library of Congress website. And this comes from um, our collection in the Bodleian. So you can consult the entire sc score of this operetta. I want to finish with um, a brief mention of the dodo in more recent work here in Terry Johnson's 1984 play, Cries from the Mammal House. In the final moments of this play, an ornithologist studying birds on Mauritius has an extraordinary experience with its indigenous people. These are the stage directions. Suddenly he is thrown into a pool of light. It is dim all around him. He stands up and peers into the darkness. Strange noises surround him. He is terrified. When he sees what it is in the pit into which he has been thrown, he begins to make a sound himself, half scream, half astonishment. And at the end of the play, he narrates what happened next. And there was something there. In the middle of the light it stood, blinking its eyes and wondering why on earth it had been woken up at this ungodly hour. It was a dodo. And it looked at me, I swear to God, and it opened its beak and it made the daftest sound I've ever heard. And then the stage direction is, from the crate there issues an absurd cry, which echoes around the mammal house. So the play not only invokes the elusive song of the dodo, we will never know what its cry was like, but it also brings to the fore the post-colonial problem Paul alluded to. What destroyed the species in the first place was colonial Dutch sailors invading the island and eradicating the dodo. Here, this process is upended as the ornithologist is captured by the local people who then reveal that they have preserved the species intact by hiding it from the West. The play ends with this moment when he brings live dodos back to his brother's zoo in England. For Victorians, as Gillian Beer has pointed out, extinction was not necessarily a bad thing. In Darwin's writing, it is just part of life, part of the cycle of loss and gain. Now, in the Anthropocene age, species loss takes on an entirely different meaning, one of sadness and irretrievable loss, depletion, and devastation, mostly wrought by human hands. The dodo lives on in Johnson's play, echoing around the mammal house. One critic called this upbeat ending Quote, a moment of pure theater that sends you out into the night feeling better for having made the journey. Thank you.